The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week for episode 135. Good news, people. We got ourselves a new Twitter account. It only took us 135 episodes to do it, but finally, the Break the Business Podcast has its own specific Twitter account for... The first 135 episodes of this podcast, I've been tweeting all podcast updates through my own Twitter, at Ryan K-A-I-R, but finally, our little podcast is growing up, and it's got a Twitter account of its very own, and I would love very much for you to follow it. Get on the ground floor of this new Twitter account. It's at the BTB podcast. That's where you can check it out, at the BTB podcast. You'll get all your podcast updates there. And it's going to be great. Um, I'll still be tweeting from my own account, at Ryan K-A-I-R, so you don't have to miss any Ryan-specific tweets. But follow both, because it would make me very happy. Our guest this week, so excited to talk to our friend of the podcast, Ilana Broad. She's going to be joining us in a little bit. If you don't remember her from a few weeks ago, she's fantastic. She's an entertainment and IP lawyer based out of New York. We like to have her on because she gives us lots of great advice on building the various members of your team. And she's going to do that for us this week, too. She's uh, going to talk to you guys about another area of your team as an indie artist that you need to recruit the right person for. And she'll tell you how to do it. But we're going to leave who that team member is until we bring her in in just a few minutes for an interview. But I also want to get some other info from her as well. Um, specifically about internet privacy. I want to talk to her about that because um, that's something that's really been on my mind lately. I've had a lot of you artists talk to me a lot about the GDPR and how it applies to your email lists and things like that. And luckily, Alana's an expert on that stuff, and so she's going to be great for us to talk to. So all that's coming up in just a little bit. Do not go anywhere. But first, uh, got some interesting pieces of news that are worth talking about regarding Spotify and record labels. Interesting implications for indie artists here. On June 14th, Digital Music News reported that major label Sony Music is selling half of its 5% stake in Spotify. This is a lot of money. We're talking about reportedly $750 million by selling half of its stake in Spotify. So big, big number. And the article reported something interesting about what Sony is going to be doing with this $750 million. Mainly that they're going to be sharing some of this money with the artists and the sub-labels that are under the Sony banner. And a lot of people are celebrating Sony for this. You know, so magnanimous. Thank you, Sony. So good to your artists. See, labels can be good to artists too. And to be fair, I you know, I've always found the relationship, this shareholder relationship between Sony and Spotify to be somewhat problematic because it's kind of a conflict of interest. Sony is supposed to be representing its artist to get the best deal possible when negotiating with Spotify. But that can be difficult when Sony is also a shareholder in Spotify and would be incentivized to give artists the worst deal possible to make Spotify as profitable as possible. All very, very shady. 
And moreover, the whole notion of owning a piece of Spotify is problematic for the labels because it's sort of like the label is making extra money off Spotify that they don't have to share with the artists. And I suppose to sort of escape that criticism, Sony is saying, look, we're going to share the money with the artists. And so everybody's celebrating Sony this week. Labels can be good artists too, Ryan. Why are you hating on them every week? Well, let's, let's slow down. Because before we praise Sony for this alleged generosity, there are a few things here to keep in mind. Why would Sony do this? Why would Sony share a chunk of its nearly billion dollars that it got from Spotify in this sale with their artists if they don't have to? If there's no direct requirement for Sony to share this money with their artists, why are they doing it? And if you're telling me it's just because they're so darn nice then you're being a little naive because that's not how this works. That's not business, man. There is absolutely an ulterior motive here, and we're going to talk about what that ulterior motive is and why something like this is happening. So, um, because, and, and the reason why I want to talk about this, that particular point, is because to understand Sony's ulterior motives in sharing some of this money with its artists is to understand a lot about where the music business is headed and what it means about the current balance of power today between artists and labels. So first of all, one thing to keep in mind about all this, and it is worth noting, Sony isn't sharing all $750 million of the dollars with the artists. Uh, the artists are not getting a big portion of this $750 million. And... Here, let me explain how the how the money is being shared. Okay, so Sony's got this pot of seven hundred and fifty million dollars, and the way that they're sharing it with the artists, according to the letter uh, reported by Digital Music News, is you know let's take an artist X. Artist X is signed to Sony, and basically, if artist X, let's say they were to contribute one percent, be responsible for one percent of Sony's total revenues. And I'm oversimplifying it a bit, but for the for the purposes of understanding, this is basically how it works. The artist, if the artist makes up 1% of Sony Music's total revenues, they will get 1% of the $750 million. But um, that before the artist gets that money, that 1% of the 750 is then reduced by the artist's royalty rate with Sony Music. So most of these artists have royalty rates between uh, 10 and 20%, give or take, maybe more, maybe less, call it 15. So if the, you know, whatever that art amount that artist gets, they only get 15% of that amount. Um, and so Sony's artists are only total getting about 15 to 20% of the $750 million. The label is keeping the rest of it. The label is keeping the vast majority of this money. Money that the labels have because of the work these artists have done. The Sony has profited off the backs of all of these talented artists. And when it comes time to share this largesse with the artists, they're still keeping a super majority of the money that's earned. So already kind of inherently problematic. Second issue, if you want to understand why Sony's doing this, you have to get an understanding of why Sony even owning a piece of Spotify is problematic. As we mentioned at the beginning, this is a huge conflict of interest. The whole notion of any major record label owning a piece of Spotify should make your skin crawl. This is problematic. The major record labels all own substantial shares of Spotify. 
which is a company that they're supposed to be opposite on the table with. If I am signed to Sony, Sony is supposed to be negotiating with Spotify, presumably to get me and Sony the best deal possible for my music, to get the highest rates possible from Spotify. But Spot, and that's what Spotify is doing as the record label, but Spotify is also a shareholder. I'm sorry, Sony, I should say, is also a shareholder in Spotify. And Sony, the shareholder, has an incentive of making the artist get as little money as possible. That is a huge conflict of interest. So Sony having this money, if they were to not share it with the artists after they sell, sell, after they were to make the sale, would create a lot of problems for Sony. Mainly, it would make Sony a target for litigation. You better believe that a lot of these top-shelf artists aren't going to take lying down the notion of Sony making extra money from Spotify as a shareholder and not sharing it with artists with this huge conflict of interest underlying all of this. And so there have already been lawsuits that uh, Sony has suffered by its artists uh, saying that this uh, relationship between Spotify and Sony is problematic. And you better believe that these lawsuits would only continue, particularly as Spotify is now starting to cash in. So if Spotify, if Sony just cashed in it, they just took this money, this $750 million, and just stuck it in the bank and didn't share it with any of the artists in their stable, you better believe it would lead to lawsuits. And so Sony's trying to head that off at the pass by sharing a tiny piece of that money with their artists. That's what's happening here. This is litigation prevention mode. Third of all, Sony is doing this because they are realizing more than ever that labels need to start treating artists better if they want to survive because going the indie route is more possible than ever. We talk about this every week on the podcast. It is never getting e- has never been easier for artists to create, promote, distribute and fundraise music on their own. This is making labels nervous. And so, you know, Sony has to create some good pub for itself. They have to show themselves treating artists well to try to shift the balance of power back a little bit. Um, To see how this is happening in real time, look at this through the lens of Spotify and what Spotify is doing right now with indie artists, because this is exciting. On June 12th, Bobby Osinski reported in Hypebot that Spotify is starting to offer certain indie artists huge advances and higher royalty rates if the artist is willing to license directly with Spotify instead of going to a label. Now, you got to pause and think about this for a second. Why would Spotify do this? Why would Spotify effectively pay more money to indie artists when it has to? Why would Spotify give higher royalty rates to artists then they have to. It's not like artists are thinking about or are, are deciding whether or not to go with Spotify. Nearly all indie artists are using Spotify. They don't need extra incentive in the form of a higher royalty rate to license directly with Spotify. So why is Spotify doing this? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Spotify is doing this because it's thinking long term. Spotify is out to change the music industry in a massive way. Spotify wants to incentivize you as an artist to stay indie by offering you this higher royalty rate by licensing with them directly because Spotify wants to create a generation of indie superstars. Why would Spotify want to do that? Because Spotify wants indie artists to succeed because they want the labels to be weaker, because they want Spotify to have more leverage over the labels the next time it comes to negotiating licensing rates with them. 
The next time it comes time to negotiate licensing deals with labels, they want indie artists to make up a bigger share of total music revenues so that the labels come to the table in a weaker position. And Spotify is willing to offer indie artists better deals now to get that better negotiating position tomorrow. So Sony sees this coming. They see that the industry is becoming better for indie artists. They see that outside actors are trying to create an industry that's better for indie artists. So how is Sony responding? They're bribing their label artists by making their life a little better. Here, we're selling our stake in Spotify. We're going to give you artists a little piece of it so that we can get some good publicity because you know we're, we're trying not to lose our power. But really, folks, it's nothing more than a Band-Aid. The industry is changing. And Sony giving artists a small piece of their stake in a company that's trying to weaken them is not going to make these changes go away. This is becoming a more indie artist-friendly music industry. There are very powerful companies like Spotify that want this to happen, and they're going to work towards it. And that's the future that Sony is staring directly in the face of, and it's going to scare them quite a bit. All right, as we brought up in the beginning of the show, I want to shift our focus now to giving advice to artists about privacy issues. Guys, this is a big deal. Um, When you talk about how important things like your websites are and maintaining your email lists are, these are central to your entire operation as an artist. Having a good website, having a good email list is more important than a good social media presence or anything because these are your home bases. And you got to make sure everything you're doing here is with... Uh, full legal compliance. And so here to discuss some of those things with us is one of our dear friends of the show, Alana Broad, New York-based entertainment and IP attorney. You can find out more about her services by visiting ilanabroadesq.com. Hi, Alana. Great to have you here. Hey, thanks so much for having me back on. I'm so, so excited. So one of the areas that I will confess is of biggest concern for me when I think about the privacy laws that artists have to comply with when maintaining an email list is... GDPR, this regulation that's coming out of Europe. And at first, I'll say when I when I was hearing about compliance with this, I thought to myself, this is only something that big companies are going to be dealing with. Uh, this is a Facebook problem, or this is just a European thing. You know, folks here in the good old US of A don't have to worry about it. And then as I started reading more about this regulation, all I could think was, oh my God, this very much does implicate Americans, and this very much does implicate the things that indie artists do every day. So thankfully you've read up on this. Uh, you, you've done a lot more research than I have. And so I'm, I'm happy to have you here so you can give us all some insight on what artists should be doing to be in compliance with GDPR with respect to things like their websites and their email lists. So you're absolutely right in that due to the globalization of the music economy. And I think the fact that most musicians want fans around the world consuming their music, you're probably going to have to comply with this new privacy regulation out of the European Union, even if you're based in America, even if you've literally never toured outside of the country. If anyone is listening to your music abroad and there's a chance that someone in the European Union is going to choose to sign up to your mail list serve, you're going to want to make sure that you're compliant with this GDPR regulation. The good news is if you believe in an individual right to privacy, this stuff is going to feel really common sense to you. And it breaks down into three major subcategories. So here's how it goes. Ready? First step, signing up to the email listserv. You have to get a double click consent which means if someone clicks to sign up to your email list, it has to bring them to another landing page that says, you sure you wanna do this? And then they gotta click, hell yeah. 
<laughs> and then you got to store that consent securely forever. You cannot use pre-clicked boxes anymore. So if someone's buying merch on your website, when they put in their credit card information, there's that little box on the bottom that says you want to sign up for our mail list that cannot be pre-clicked. They have to actively click it and you have to store a record of that forever and ever. If you haven't done it this way, you have to get new permissions. So here's the first step in compliance. Send out to your existing email listserv a new sign up button that says, we love having you around. We wanna make sure that you know what you're doing. Click here to stay on board with these communications. You're gonna have to do that. So is that why I've been seeing that a lot more lately from all the websites I go to? Absolutely. For two reasons. Number one, in America, it is privacy policy update season. So you are going to get all of those policy emails from all of the major apps that you're signed on to in the last month going into the next four to six weeks. But also because the GDPR just went into effect, a lot of these mail list serves that previously weren't compliant are just sending out a follow up email like, if you stay on board, we'd love to have you. If not, here's how you get off or here's how to click to stay on board, stuff like that. The second step for compliance has to do with storing personal information once people sign up for your mail list serves or once people share their information with you through your fan website or your official website. It used to be, and in the United States the standard still is, de-identified. And what that basically means is just keeping personal name away from any secondary information like email, phone number, address, other contact stuff. It has to be removed from the identifiable part of the information. The new standard is a step up. It's referred to as anonymized. And what that means is that the program that reattaches personally identifiable information to that email address has to be separate and it has to be protected. You also have to share this system with your fans. They have to know what you're doing to be compliant, what these data storage and safekeeping processes are. And if you sell their data, they have to know about that too. Basically, this step really involves contacting a lawyer, but if you use any sort of mail list service like MailChimp, just call them up, send them an email, ask them the ways in which they're compliant with the GDPR, ask them if they have a form email that you can send to your listserv that ensures to your fans that you are keeping their personal information protected so nobody can hack into it very easily. So yeah, many of the artists that are out listening right now will often use a third-party service like a MailChimp to run their email list. Like they're not just putting all their email addresses in a two box on Microsoft Outlook and sending them out to the world. It's a little, it's usually a little more sophisticated, although I'm sure a lot of artists still do it that way. And please don't if you're listening. <laughs> but so what you're saying is a big part of ensuring GDPR compliance for these artists is going to whomever you're using for these services and making sure that they are in compliance. And that will go a long way to saving their bacon here. Absolutely, 100%. As a lawyer, I always advise my clients to try to get that information in writing. What that means if you're emailing MailChimp is just email them instead of a phone call if you can and save, print to PDF a copy of their response that says these are the ways in which we comply with the GDPR. This is what you can send to your fans to let them know that you do comply. You can also ask MailChimp if they have any information about what fans of yours are in the EU when they get your emails when you send them out 
or whose addresses are based in the EU or whose IP addresses upon signing up for these emails are in the EU. You should comply anyway, but it's good information to have. I mean, you know, you should understand the demographics that you reach out to anyway. And then knowing who falls under this regulation, what are the chances that you'll get caught if you don't comply? That's just sort of good, prudent practice. But there's a third step to compliance and you need to stay on top of your third party mail software to make sure that they comply with this last step. It's really important. And that is the right of erasure. It's basically an unsubscribe link. It's got to be easily viewable. It's got to be easily usable. And it's got to take your email off future mailings. There's an additional step, though, that I think is worth mentioning. And that is you also have to provide a contact email address for people if they want you to erase all of their data. So unsubscribe means you don't get future mailings. Right of erasure means an additional step of also you have to erase all of the information you have about them stored in every single place that you have it stored. And you have to store, you have to keep and maintain a record of them sending you that request for the erasure. So it's sort of, it's sort of unsubscribe plus. It's I, I not only do I not want to be here anymore, but I want you to remove all traces of my existence. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, the kind of thing that we all wish that we could do on Google. <laughs> <laughs> or, or on Twitter. But um. <laughs> basically, contact the third-party software that helps you with your mail list. Make sure that they're compliant. You can literally ask, are you compliant with the new EU regulations for data privacy? They will know what you're talking about. And if you're still struggling with understanding the minutia, understand a lot of people are. That's totally okay. Consult with your lawyer. Ask them, is there anything more specific that I need to know? It does get more specific than what I've explained today. This is a very, very general overview of the three major steps that apply to mail list serves. But your lawyer will understand a little bit more of the specifics, a little bit more of the minutia. Make sure you're talking to them ongoing as you maintain these marketing methods. And not to scare the crap out of my listeners here, but... The penalties for being out of compliance with GDPR can be pretty severe, right? Absolutely. I mean, to some degree, it can be based on a percentage of your revenue, which basically means you have to report your revenue to a foreign body, which is a huge undertaking and costs a lot of money, or it's a flat fee. And some of these flat fees get up to millions upon millions of dollars. I mean, the day the GDPR went into effect, a watchdog group in the European Union sued Facebook and Twitter for violations. And the quote for damages is a number that I can't possibly even write out on paper. It's just (laughs) impossible to imagine. And I don't necessarily think that will happen for artists. I don't want to sort of scare you into compliance. But the purpose for this regulation is to give people a right to control the ways in which people contact them, use their personal information, and then a right of information so that users know how that stuff is being stored, if it's secure, if they're selling that information to third parties, to whom they're selling it, how they're vetting the companies to whom they're selling it. It seems common sense when you explain the purpose. It's just that it's new. And so compliance means changing your practices a little bit. Don't be afraid. Do not fret. There are people that understand these things. There are companies that you interact with regularly that understand these things. Just ask them. Don't be afraid to ask. Are you compliant? What do I need to do to assist 
in compliance. You can check out the Wikipedia page for the GDPR. It's very informative. Um, and I would definitely recommend reading a couple of articles on five things you can do to comply with GDPR for my email list serve. They're all over the internet now because this came into effect recently. You can just Google this stuff. Really download the information into your brain. Make sure you talk with professionals about it. Just be aware this is a thing that happened recently. Things are going to have to change moving forward to comply with this regulation around the world. And, you know, keep it on your radar. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, check her out, folks, at ilanabroadesq.com. As you can see, she really knows her stuff. She's super knowledgeable, particularly about an area of law that's stumping a lot of us in the legal profession. So I'm, I'm glad that we have her here. But, Ilana, we don't just have you here to talk about, like, the geopolitical intrigue of international <laughs> privacy law, although that's certainly stimulating, too. One of the things that we love talking with you about, and we had a great time talking about this with you last time we had you on, is we love to get your advice on building a support team. So this is something that, you know, you advise a lot of indie artists on, is sort of helping artists find the right support staff, things like managers and other lawyers, to help them build their careers out. And the support team member that I wanted to talk with you about today and get your advice on it are PR agents. A lot of artists are always talking to me about, you know, oh, I got this album coming out. I want to hire a publicist or a PR agent to give the album a little extra promotional juice. Um, what's, what's a good rate? Uh, how do I retain one of these kind of people? Uh, what contract term should I be looking at? Um, so I, I, I imagine you've advised artists on this very question a lot. What are some of the things that you'd tell an artist if they came to you and said, I'm looking for a PR agent? So first and foremost, when an artist comes to me and says, I'm looking for a PR agent, I ask them, what other team members have they developed already? Are they doing their own management? Have they tried doing their own PR? Uh, do they have a live agent? I want to get a feel for at what stage in album release in career development overall are they? And that's going to inform sort of what they should look for and what they should expect out of a PR company. If you're working with a PR company alone and you are working as your own manager, that's okay, but you're probably gonna have to do a little bit of extra work beyond what you're currently doing to support what the PR team is doing. And you should feel free to talk to the PR company about that. Talk to the PR rep specifically about how you, based on the current makeup of your team, can support the work that they're doing. But just to sort of go back to the beginning, when you're looking for PR, First and foremost, the number one thing that everyone should know about looking for PR is that you are paying for effort. You are not paying for results. And if you Google what I should look for in PR, all of the first articles in the first five pages will tell you this. You are paying for effort. You are not paying for results. And if you are that jerk that withholds the second stage of payment because you did not get a number of articles that you required, <laughs> everyone's going to hear about it. It's a very small business, and you're probably going to lose access to PR in the future. So just understand this is the way the business works. I know that that can be frustrating or new information for people that haven't worked for PR companies in the past. But the reason why we do it that way is because your PR agents, your PR rep, are putting their contacts on the line. Whether or not those third parties pick up your record for release for Premiere is not up to the PR company. It's up to the press outlet. It's up to the media agent. And you have to understand that that's not really in the PR agent's control. And so withholding money from them for services that they've provided for you for something that's out of their control, it's not fair. It's not good business juju. It's not particularly moral or ethical. And I would not advise you to behave that way. 
Well, you're absolutely right about that. And it is something a lot of artists struggle with. And, I, and, and, and the answer you just gave is the one that I give artists, which is this is just the way this sector of the business is. So let me ask you something that a lot of artists will usually tell me in response, which is if I'm not paying for effort, how do I know that this PR agent's going to do a good job? How do I know they're not just going to take my money and run? Like, what are some things I should be, what are some things I should look for to make sure that this is somebody who's serious and isn't just going to like take my money and, and, and fade away into the night? A hundred percent. The number one question you should ask your PR rep before you hire them is how often do you send me reports? They should be reports. keeping a log of pitches. They should be sending you an updated log of pitches. I ask for a weekly basis update of logs of pitches. The reason I do that is because when my PR agent reaches out to a news outlet, a media outlet, a blog on behalf of my client, and the client really wants that, I tell my client to send a personalized handwritten thank you note for giving that record a listen. I'm telling you, everyone loves a handwritten thank you note. It is, it's just the, it's the easiest way to get your name up a couple notches on someone's consideration. So I wanna know on a week by week basis, who they've been reaching out to. Some PR companies will not do that. Some of them will provide you a log of pitches at the end of the term for which you've hired them or on a month to month basis. It just depends on what their abilities are, how many people they have hired. If it's a one person shop, all the time they're spending sending you that log of pitches, they're not spending pitching your stuff. So they're probably going to only be able to send it a little bit less often. But you can totally ask for information, for clear affirmative information on to whom they've reached out, how, why, you know, in what way, what they've said, what they've sent. Um, you can also exercise a little bit of control over what specifically they're sending to these media outlets. That's another way that you can stay on top of what your PR agent is doing for you. There are four main elements for everything that goes into a PR pitch. That's your personal bio. Ideally, your PR rep is either going to help you draft that or they're going to help you hire a bio writer. I always hire third-party bio writers because I like just getting another set of eyes on something. In the same way I advise to have a different mix engineer than who produces your record, I like to have another set of ears on something. I just think collaboration produces the most effective results. The next thing you're going to want to have is a set of photos, a really good photo shoot. Nowadays, your iPhone can take great photos. That's certainly true. But press outlets are looking for photos that are indicative of your brand that show your identity. So working on this bio with your PR agent or a bio writer is also going to help you delineate and figure out sort of your mood board, your identity, the way that you relate to the existing tropes and genres in the music industry based on your music and your personality and your goals and your values. The third thing that you're going to bring on is quotes and reviews and articles. What that means is that the first piece of press is going to be the hardest to get. And thereafter, you're going to have a backlog, an EPK of sorts that includes other press pieces, other media articles that you've gotten on this work or earlier work. You're going to want to share that with other people. And then the fourth piece is your music. Your music's got to be good. You know, you can have the best PR agent in the whole wide world. And if press just isn't digging your vibe, they're not going to publish your pieces. It doesn't matter how many thousands of dollars you throw down the well of PR. If the music isn't there, people aren't going to publish it. That's right. And uh, it's interesting you bring up this point about sort of working with your bio and, you know, them kind of helping you set these things up. In my experience, I find which what sort of separates the legitimate PR agents from the ones who are just out to take your money is 
if they're willing to accept any project that comes in the door, that can be a red flag. Whereas I, I've worked with PR agents who are very selective about their clients because they don't want to put their own name on the line for a crap product. And so 100%. first of all, they'll find somebody they really believe in and then and they'll be selective. But second of all, they're not going to let you just put your stuff out there. They often will work very closely with you and make a lot of recommendations on how to sort of pretty up your presence before they go in and send it to outlets. And I get artists who are really frustrated where I'm like, this stupid PR agent's making me rewrite my bio and redo my website. And I was like, good, <laughs> your bio and your website are terrible. That means she's doing her job. <laughs> exactly. The best PR agents that I work with nowadays will help you revamp your social media presence yeah. to make sure it's in line with the brand that you're shoving out to press outlets. I mean, you want to have a unified strategic strategy. You really, you want to be very specific and you want to strategize with intent as you move forward with this plan with your PR agent. A good PR agent is going to be a team member for making those decisions and making that happen. A bad PR agent is going to be like, this is how much I cost. Send me your stuff and I'll see what I can do. And that's the end of that. So, you know, ask them the ways in which they interact with their clients, ask them for a log, a record of pitches, ask them how often they intend to communicate with you to make sure that this goes through well. Uh, it really should be a team member. It's not just, I mean, legally they're an independent contractor, but it isn't just an independent contractor. They should be working with you on an ongoing basis. Wow. GDPR and PR agents. We have, we have really uh, had quite a breadth of discussion today. This is good. Um, Alana Broad, everybody. Again, one more time, you can check her out at alanabroadesq.com. She's fantastic. Uh, I want to talk to her again and again because she's, she's knowledgeable and, and, and she's engaging and she makes this stuff interesting and uh, very, very much appreciate it. Alana, thank you so much for your time this week. Thank you so much for having me again. I love being on this show. Awesome. Take care. There we go. Alana brought everybody. She is so great. I learn so much every time I talk to her. I am so glad that she takes the time to speak with us. I can't have her on enough. She's so terrific. That's alanabroadesq.com. Be sure to visit her website. She is great. Thank you all very much for listening this week. As I said in the beginning of the show, be sure to follow our new Break the Business Podcast Twitter account. That's at the BTB Podcast. And of course, follow me on Twitter as well, at Ryan K-A-I-R. And you can like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash break the business. And be sure to get a copy of my book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry, available paperback, ebook, and audiobook. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Most of all, thank you all very, very much for listening this week. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Break the Business podcast. We will see you next week.